Welcome to another edition of Why Things Be Like They Do. This is for Team Elite who have ponied up their hard-earned, so my eternal thanks, here is your recompense, in accordance with the compact struck. Last time we talked about, well, time. And it was fun, and gosh, didn't we all have a good time? I have to stop saying time so much. But it was rightly pointed out to me that I missed a couple of measurements of time. That was entirely intentional. Because as someone once told me, always make sure you have work for tomorrow. So today, which was yesterday's tomorrow, we'll be covering why the days and the months be like they do. So let's do the time talk again. Let's kick it off with the days of the week. I've mentioned before the various shenanigans that have gone on when making calendars. So as much as I'd love to chew up some time by repeating myself, you expect better of me and I expect better of myself. So I'll trust you remember or that you go back and listen to the old show and boost my metrics. That'd be great. But a quick recap. A month is a lunar cycle, which is about 28 days. Divide that by half, and then half again, and hang on, let me check my math here. Yep, that's seven. Which, coincidentally, is the number of days in a week. The word week, which I didn't get into in the last show, is derived from the Proto-Germanic word vis, or vosh, which means a sequence of things happening. So, stuff. A week is a list of stuff. So there are seven days in a week, and those days are thus. Sunday! And on the seventh day, God rested. So you could say that scripture says that Sunday should be the end of the week and not the start of it. But this is one of those weirder places where science and religion are at odds with each other for bizarre reasons. In the Hebrew and Christian calendars, Sunday is the first day of the week, and the Quakers call it first day as part of their weird testimony of simplicity thing that they do. Sunday is the most significantly religious day, devoted to God and all that, And I can't tell if it makes more sense for them to kick off their week with a religious festival or to honour the spirit of the various holy books and have a rest day come the end of the week. Anyway, as ever, when we get to religion, things get murky. I'm a man of science, as we all know, and according to the International Organization for Standardization, from whence we get all of our standards, they consider Sunday to be the last day of the week. And since I'm not arguing with them over any of their other metrics, Usually, I'd run with them on this one. But here's the thing. Sunday is the most boring of days. So while it might be technically correct to have it at the end of the week, and I'm all about being technically correct, You are technically correct. The best kind of correct. I don't want to close on this weakest of all days. That's a rookie move, and I'm not going to make it. So let's rip this band-aid off at the start. There's not a lot to read into Sunday. As you've probably guessed, it's named after the sun. Helios, Sol Invictus, Sontag. Choose your flavor, they're all the same thing. And as I said in the other show about time, 
The sun has been a pretty big deal throughout history, and the most important day of the week was always going to be named after it. As an aside, I love the Russian name for Sunday. Voskosinia, which means not work day. And their word for Monday is ponyadeik, which means day after not work day. Sometimes I just love the no-bullshit nature of Russian. It can be a magical language. But Sunday, named after the sun, not much to read into it there. Like I said, boring, move on. Which brings us to Monday, which has traditionally followed Sunday. Or as the Russians call it, day after Sunday. Monday comes from the Proto-Germanic Monendeg, or Day of the Moon. And just quickly, you're going to see a lot of Proto-Germanic in this wrap-up. Pretty much everything related to Days of the Week in English comes from the Teutons and the Vikings. Why? Well, that's really complicated, and it involves a lot of people named Harold and a couple of people called William. And like I said, it's quite complex. Other languages, especially the Romance languages, have their own etymologies, obviously, but English does it Viking style. So if you've got a Sunday, you've got to have a moon day. And the moon will follow the sun. There's a bit of symbolism involved there, especially when we start getting sexual. The sun is the father, the moon is the mother, it's a day for women and mothers. It all gets a bit wishy-washy, but like Sunday, Monday doesn't really have a lot of interest going for it. It's kind of, mm, meh, Monday, moon day, don't read too much into it. Solomon Grundy was born on a Monday, and Garfield famously hates them. Although, as my erstwhile friend James Colley put it, time is an abstract concept to Garfield, every day is the same to him, but Monday is the day when John goes back to work, and thus it's Garfield's way of reconciling that he actually loves John and mourns his absence. Collie also used to secretly draw dicks in all of my notebooks, so don't let Mr. Blue Tick TV writer get too full of himself there. So Monday, Moon Day, you see how we get that. Tuesday. Ah, now we're starting to get spicy. Tuesday comes from Tew, which is often anglicized as Tyr, T-Y-R. Tyr is a Norse god of war and he's often conflated with Ares and Mars. Well, actually, we need to back up here, because the Norse pantheon is kind of weird when it comes to war gods. Almost every god is a war god. Norse gods are multidimensional. They're war gods and other things. They multitask. In this case, Tyr is the god of single combat. So if you're in a big melee, Odin's your guy. But if you're going at it mano e mano with another human... That's the portfolio of Tyr. Tyr was the bravest of the Norse gods, and that's something special, because remember, we got Thor in this mix. Are you mocking me? Are you mocking me? Stop it, you just didn't do it again. But Thor was more of a combination of bravery and stupidity. Tyr was known to be the most valorous of the gods, the most courageous, the most chivalric, and he was also known as Tyr the One-Handed. In Norse mythology, there was a big-ass wolf called Fenrir, and it did horrible wolf stuff, like shorting stock on Wall Street. Fairy dust. It doesn't exist. It's never landed. It is no matter. It's not on the elemental chart. If you've seen Thor Ragnarok, that's the thing that Hulk fights at the end. And Fenrir was being a naughty wolf, 
and the gods needed to stop him. So the gods made this magic chain made out of crazy shit like cats, footsteps, and fish breath. Norse mythology is wild, and they used this to bind Fenrir. But Fenrir isn't going to go down without a fight. He doesn't want to be caged up. No wolf does, especially not super magic giant naughty wolves. So Odin is all like, hey, Fenrir, we'll just sort of uh, playfully tie you up in this magic chain that we made out of fish breath. You know, like Fifty Shades of Grey. It'll be fun. We'll let you out after and then we'll all giggle about what happened and have some pillow talk. And Fenrir knows some shit is up and he doesn't buy it. So he says, yeah, okay, you can tie me up in your magic chain, but he'll only consent to being tied up if one of the gods will place a hand in his mouth, his giant fanged wolf mouth, so that if they don't release him, Fenrir will bite off that god's hand. And nobody wants this job because there's no way that they're going to untie this horrible giant wolf monster, so whoever does this is going to lose a hand. And that's when your boy Tyr steps up and says, yeah, I've got two hands for a reason. Long story short, he's only got one hand now. He's Tyr the one-handed. And that's his big claim to fame. So why does this sort of background character of Norse mythology get his own day? Well, Tyr was associated with the thing. (laughs) Oh my god, that is so fun to say. I love lexically ambiguous sentences. The thing was part of Tyr's portfolio. If you wanted to do the thing, or have a thing, you had to invoke Tyr. That's how things happened. (laughs) Alright, so you've probably guessed, thing doesn't mean what you might think here. Today, a thing is a placeholder for an unknown quantity. It's an abstract. If you don't know what a thing is, you call it a thing. If it's a mystery, it's a thing. But the word thing actually means an ancient Germanic parliament a meeting of officials to discuss governance was known as a thing. And you'd have a day set aside to have a thing, and since Tyr was in charge of things, you'd call it Tyr's Day, or Tuesday. Tuesday's coming. Did you bring your coat? I live in a giant bucket. You can still see some of the etymological roots of the word thing today aside from our use of the word as it is, as a sort of placeholder. Thing got anglicized into the word hustings. When a politician is out campaigning, they're said to be on the hustings, or lobbying for their place, on the thing. A thing is a parliament. So there you go, the more you know. And since Tyr was in charge of things, the day of things became Tyr's Day, or Tuesday. Wednesday. Woden's Day. Woden. Voten. Also known as Odin, or Odin Borson, or look, the dude literally has hundreds of names. It was kind of his thing, having over a hundred names. But the most famous name is Odin. Odin is the chief god of the Norse pantheon. He's the main guy, the big cheese, the Tony Montana of Viking mythology. Odin is, among other things, a war god, a death god particularly people who die in battle and people who are hanged. So he's also known as the gallows god. Uh, Anyone who was hanged was a sacrifice to Odin. In fact, one time Odin hung himself as a sacrifice to himself, which sent him into a quantum state of perpetual sacrifice to himself awesomeness. 
Uh, Odin's also the god of crazy people. Sometimes he's known as Lord of the Frenzy or King of the Possessed. And he's also the Norse god of wisdom. So he's got a lot going on. So to back up a bit, in Norse mythology, there were two groups of gods. The Aesir and the Vanir. The Aesir are the ones we know. Odin, Thor, Loki, etc. The Vanir were just like them, but not. And they had a feud with the Aesir. Kind of like the Crips and the Bloods. So the Aesir and the Vanir went to war, and eventually the Aesir won. Now, the Vanir had a god of wisdom, a dude called Murmur, M-I-R-M-I-R. He was the wisest of the Vanir, the wisest of all the gods, both Aesir and Vanir. And Odin, being on the victorious side of this war, he didn't want that wisdom to go to waste. Odin's all about wisdom. He loves wisdom, can't waste wisdom. So what he does is when he wins this war, he cuts off Murmur's head and just sort of carries it around with him. He starts asking it questions whenever he needed to know something. So Mermia's head was just sort of attached to his belt at all times. It was like a combination of Google mixed with a magic eight ball, except it was the immortal disembodied head of a prisoner of war. So like I said, Odin was all about wisdom and knowledge. He had two ravens, Hugin and Munin, thought and memory, who flew around the world collecting secrets and then whispering them back to Odin. But Odin wasn't happy with all that level of knowledge, though. He wanted more. He was always looking for more secrets. And that's when he found a magic well, which contained all of the world's knowledge. And he said to this well that he would like to have all of the world's knowledge. How much knowledge would you like to have? Well, all of it. And the well said, yeah, I can do that, but you're gonna have to make a sacrifice to the well. And Odin's like, do I need to drop in a penny or something? And the well went, nah, it's going to need to be a bit heavier than that. I'm going to need you to rip out one of your eyeballs and then just chuck it on in there. And then I'll give you all of the knowledge in the universe. And Odin's all like, deal. And that's why Odin is known as Odin the One-Eyed. He's the genesis of the phrase, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. He had an eight-legged horse called Sleipnir which is presumably twice as fast as a regular horse, although I don't know how that multiplies. It's possibly a factorial. And he used Sleipnir to lead an army of undead ghost cavalry riding through the sky in something called the Wild Hunt. So yes, he's the genesis of both Ghost Riders in the Sky and The Witcher 3 The Wild Hunt. And he's also pretty much the origin of Christmas. Well, Christmas is a lot of things. Uh, Mithras and Saturnalia, among others. None of it is actually Christian. But the festival of Yule, or Yuletide, is originally a celebration of Odin. And to top it all off, during Ragnarok, which is the end of the world, Odin is destined to be eaten by our old mate Fenrir. So it's all full circle, Lion King, circle of life. But that's where we get the name Wednesday. Odin, Woden, Wednesday. There you go. Thursday. Thursday is the day of Thor, the god of thunder. Thor is here! If you've consumed any popular culture in the last decade or so, you know who Thor is. Thanks to the character played by Chris Hemsworth in the MCU. 
He's an Avenger, for Christ's sake. So let's not retread old ground here. Magic Hammer called Mjolnir shoots thunder and lightning, major beef with Thanos, you know the deal. The Norse god Thor is not so much like his Marvel Universe counterpart. The MCU Thor is an Avenger, he's a pillar of nobility and honor and chivalric virtue. His powers are tied to Mjolnir, and Mjolnir has that famous catch in the contract Whosoever be worthy shall wield the power of Thor, and Captain America can pick it up because he's Captain America, and cinemas full of bogan imbeciles cheer at this unthought-out plot development. Actual Norse Thor was a bit different. For one thing, he wasn't blonde. He was a ranger. So there's your first clue that something's sus. Thor was known for his raging red hair. Uh, He's still the god of thunder, and he's also a god of war, like everyone else. And he's married to Lady Sif, which is a much more sensible choice than Natalie Portman. And also, Thor, the Norse god, is a dangerously unhinged alcoholic psychopath, and he's known for being somewhat of an idiot. Every story in Norse mythology involving Thor revolves around him being conned in some way, and then he gets drunk, goes into a berserk fury, and then he murders everyone around him, friend or foe, until his bloodlust subsides and he runs out of breath and he can't murder anymore. He most certainly would not be allowed in the Avengers. The Avengers would fight him. Because the actual Thor makes the Hulk seem like a highly intelligent and reasonable person with a good handle on his emotions. But he's why we have Thursday. It's Thor's Day. Next up, TGIF. Friday is not what you'd expect. Is Friday named after Frey, the Norse god of peace and fertility, known for his massive, raging, tumescent erection? Friday? Frey That kind of fits, doesn't it? Eh, wrong. That's not where we get Friday. So is Friday named after Freya? the sister of Frey, and the Norse goddess of sexy times, battle, death, and fucking on a flaming longboat after vanquishing your enemies. She's also the goddess in charge of the Valkyrie, and among other things, her domain is witchcraft, so she's kind of a big deal. So is Friday named after Freya? Also no. That too is incorrect. Friday is actually named after Frigga, Frigga is the queen of the gods and the wife of Odin. She was also a goddess of beauty, love, super witchcraft, everything that Freya did, but more so. And because all of the days of the week kind of line up with the old ancient Roman system, which was based on the ancient Greek system, and they all had days named after a goddess of the hearth, Juno or Hera in that case, then it flowed on to the Norse pantheon when they were making up their days of the weeks, So their equivalent of the goddess of the hearth, Juno or Hera, was Frigga. And that's why Frigga is in charge of Friday, and not one of the more logical choices that you could have made. So Friday is Frigga's day. And because this is literally the only time I will be able to do this joke that I wrote years ago, here we go. Odin was created by Bors, and he was feeling lonely, as single men are wont to do, and Bors, being the good father that he is, decided to make a wife for Odin, 
and so he created Frigga, and she was beautiful and smart and perfect in every way, and he presented her to Odin, and he said, Odin, I made you a wife. This is Frigga. And Odin says, Frigga? I just met her. Ah, thank you. Saturday. Saturday is the weirdest of the bunch. Like I said before, the days of the week come from a proto-Germanic shift of classical Roman deities which themselves come from the Greeks, so Tyr is Mars, Frigga is Juno, and so forth. Well, this is where the system breaks down. Because Saturday comes from Saturn, which doesn't have a Norse analogue. If you'll recall the last show like this that I did, where I talked about the planets, you'll remember old mate Saturn. And if you don't recall it, or you never listened to it, then feel free to do that. It validates the sad clown that is me. Saturn is the Roman god of agriculture, but he doesn't have a direct correlation to any Greek gods. The closest Greek god you'll get is Cronus, who was a titan, not a god, and he was associated with time. And neither of them have a direct equivalent in the Norse pantheon. Or do they? Well, they do, if you're particularly versed in Norse mythology and folklore. There's a bunch of figures you could pick to occupy this position. Maybe one of the mighty giants, immortal enemies to the Aesir who will fight them when Ragnarok comes. Maybe you could pick the king of the frost giants and father of Loki, Lefei. Or what about the king of the fire giants? He's kind of like a titan, you could name a day after him. And since the king of the fire giants is Surtur, you could call this... Surtur's Day, which I guess would be anglicised into Saturday. I mean, you could do that if you were versed in Norse mythology, like I have been since I was a wee bairn. But the people who came up with the days of the week weren't as academically inclined, and so they didn't do that. This is all just a coincidence. This is me reverse engineering with, with a bit of supercilious flexing. Like I say, this is all a coincidence, and a fair bit of shoehorning. When the days of the week originally migrated from Latin into the languages that became English, there wasn't a direct counterpart to the Roman Saturn, so they just sort of left it as it was. Saturn was a pretty cool god and people liked him. He had a festival every year in late December called the Saturnalia, and it was the most popular day of the year. You'd get together with friends and family and exchange gifts and have feasts, and there was a a righteous amount of orgies. So you can see why it was the most popular day of the year. And when Christianity was trying to get a foot in the door, one of the things they did was say, hey, we've got a festival like that too. In fact, it's almost identical to your festival in every way, except that it is totally coincidentally on the day that our Sky Wizard was born. What are the odds? And we call it the Mass of Christ, or Christ Mass. And it's just like Saturnalia, except there's less casual sex because we're not fun. And that's the story of Christmas. But Saturday. Basically, you needed at least one day a week dedicated to rest and relaxation. That's a pretty standard thing across mankind throughout history. Everyone needs a day off. A few of my old employers fought this philosophy, but it still rings true. And even Yahweh was big on this. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy and all that. And Saturday is at least according to the believers, the seventh day of the week. The Sabbath, as it were. And that's as far as I'm going to go into dogma on this show. And naturally, when you were trying to come up with a day dedicated to doing Sweet Fanny Adams, the first person that sprang to mind was Saturn, since he had his holy festival of awesomeness every year where you just 
ate until you were sick, got drunk, and fucked all day. Why don't we have one of those every week? We'll call it Saturn's Day. Saturday. So those are your days of the week. Now you know, and now you'll rock your next trivia night with some righteous knowledge. But what of the months of the year? There are 12 of those, and they have names. From whence did those names come? Well, settle in, my lovely patrons, and I shall be like unto the light and the way. And a proviso before we go on. I'm going to be going with the Gregorian calendar here, although that's pretty much the same as the Julian calendar. I'm not going to do any of the funky calendars. And if you're wondering what the hell is the difference between a Gregorian and a Julian calendar, I've been over it before. It's History Go Time Episode 4, Tempest Frangit, where I go into the subject at great length. Also, for anyone that didn't get it, Tempest Frangit is a pun in Latin. Tempest Fugit is the more common saying, which means time flies. Tempest Frangit is a play on words, meaning time is broken. See, this is why I don't do club comedy anymore. They're not as on board with Latin puns as you guys. Alright, unlike days of the week, there's no ambiguity about where the year kicks off. We all agree on that. The first month is January. In Roman mythology, there was a god called Janus. Janus's portfolio was transition. He was the god of beginnings, endings, alphas, omegas, gateways, doorways, duality, and the passage of time. Among other things, he was pretty much all-encompassing. And the way that Janus was usually depicted was having two faces, one looking forward and one looking back. So Janus was also known as the two-faced god, which was why Alec Trevelyan used him as a moniker in the exceptionally underrated James Bond film, Goldeneye. For England. For England, Alec. But having two faces is not an entirely accurate depiction of Janus. Because of the limitations of both the medium of marble and the four dimensions that mankind exists in, it was kind of hard to depict Janus as he was imagined. So having two faces was the best way of doing that in abstract. With our current understanding of the universe, we would say that Janus existed in a quantum superposition of facing both forwards and backwards at the same time, and it was only by observing him that we collapsed that superposition into a singular state. But I think the Romans did a bloody good job of displaying that for people who didn't have Arabic numerals. Anyway, January is the first month of the year, because this period is the transition from the old year to the new one. So it was associated with the god of transitions, Janus, and so became January. I really don't have time to get into Latin conjugation, but the way you'd say it in Latin would be Januarius mensis, meaning the month of January, which is how the Uary part came about. That's how you get from Janus to January. February. Let's address the elephant in the room first. February is spelt Foxtrot, Echo, Bravo, Romeo, Uniform, Alpha, Romeo, Yankee. But we say February. Foxtrot, Echo, Bravo, Uniform, Alpha, Romeo, Yankee. Why is this? Well, technically both pronunciations are correct. February and February. It's more a matter of whereabouts in the Anglosphere you hail from, but February is more common. This is a unique quirk of the language. Essentially, in English, we don't like it when two liquid consonants run together. It feels wrong. It feels like you've got a wad of cotton stuck in your mouth. February. 
February, February, February. It sounds clumsy to say. So the way we get around that is to just drop one of the post-alveolar ah sounds entirely to make the whole thing easier to say. We just get rid of it. In phonology and linguistics, this is called dissimilation. Just dropping one of those ahs. So there you go. It's a scientifically sound sound. So anyway, February is another Roman thing, and like most Roman things, it revolves around a fuck festival. In this case, the festival is known as Dies Februatus, which is more commonly known as the Lupercalia. And all of this is absolutely wild, and it's like describing capital citywide bondage orgy. But I'll do my best to crush it down into something that fits our modern sensibilities. And unless you're an expert on ancient Rome, it's absolutely not going to make any sense. If you do know your Roman history, you'll go, ah, yes, perfectly reasonable. But if you don't know, you're going to be saying, what the shit, a lot. And of course, I'm not going to fill in those gaps because it's way more fun this way. So once a year, the Romans would have a festival to purge the city of evil and witchcraft and bad things. And this festival was called the Lupercalia, and it was one of their most sacred festivals. And I reiterate, this all makes sense if you know Roman history and mythology, but here we go. To purify the eternal city against evil spirits, here's what you had to do once a year. You need to get two guys to dress up as werewolves. They're completely naked, except for a wolf mask. And for a few days beforehand, they've been force-fed ancient Viagra, so that they can maintain a massive, throbbing erection throughout the whole of the festival. And they're the guys that are in charge. They go to a sacred cave, and they sacrifice a dog and a goat to the sacred she-wolf that suckled Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome. The two werewolves are then soaked in the blood of these animals, and then they get the blood washed off with milk. At this point, it is absolutely crucial that both of these werewolves laugh hysterically. Then, they use the flayed skin of one of the sacrificed animals to make whips. The two naked wolf men with tumescent erections then take the whips and run anti-clockwise or widdishins around the city of Rome, whipping anyone in their way. It was considered lucky to be whipped by the werewolf, and it was said that anyone who was whipped by the naked wolfman was guaranteed to fall pregnant, so barren women would present themselves to be whipped by the naked, erect werewolf. But everyone that was around got a good whipping by the werewolves. And once the werewolves completed a lap of Rome, they returned to the magic cave. At that point, everyone ate some figs. And then it was time for everyone to suck some titties. If you were a woman, you had to have your titties sucked. And if you're a man, you had to find a titty to suck. That was what the gods demanded. And then, once everyone's either sucked a titty or had their titties sucked, you need to get uproariously drunk and have sex with everyone. But what if you were single? Don't worry, the Romans had that covered. For a few days before the Lupercalia, everyone who was single wrote their name on a slip of paper and dropped it into a sacred amphora, a jug, basically. There was one for men, one for women, one for men who wanted some men, and one for women who wanted women. 
and then their names were drawn out, and it was your religious duty to bang whoever you were paired up with in this ancient fuck raffle. And that's the Lupercalia. And somewhere in the last 2,000 years, people, for reasons completely lost to me, decided to abandon this festival in favor of chastity, abstinence, and the worship of a carpenter who was made out of saltines. Anyway, the whips that the werewolves made were known as Februum, so February. And also one of the names of the goddess Juno, goddess of love, hearth, family, making families, etc., was Juno Februata. So it all means purity or purification or to purify. Obviously there's way more to it than that, but you know the rules, we always go with the coolest version, and that version involves horny naked werewolves. March. Okay, so we know there's a whole lot of Roman pantheon going on here. So, with that in mind, who does March sound like? You guys are fantastic. I'm absolutely certain that all of you said Mars, and I'm so very, very proud of all of you. So here in the Southern Hemisphere, March is the first month of autumn. It's when things start to get colder and the sad times are coming. But in the Northern Hemisphere, this is all the other way around. March is the first month of spring, when things start to warm up. And when things start to warm up, that means you can start fighting wars again. Hooray! In ancient times... Hell, until relatively recently, nobody fought in the winter. Armies would have the entire cold season off. Nobody fought in the winter. It was considered to be a fucking crazy thing to do. It's cold, there's snow, there's ice. The weather is more likely to kill you than whoever you're fighting, so nobody fights in the winter. It's just common sense. In fact, some of the more notable battles and campaigns in history came in the winter precisely because nobody expected to be fighting in the winter. Julius Caesar did it a couple of times, Hannibal Barker did it on some spectacular occasions, the Mongols were famous for doing it all the time, but as a rule, nobody fought in the winter. You waited for the weather to warm up. And right around March was when the weather started to do just that. So if you're a Roman, and all good patriotic Romans were warmongers, If you were a Roman, you were looking forward to the day when you could get your testudo on and go and murder some barbarians. And the month when you were finally able to do that was dedicated to the god of war, Mars. The festival they had was called Martius, because it was dedicated to Mars. And that's where we get words like Marshall, they come from him as well. So you have a festival honoring the god of war. Oh boy, the weather's heating up, better make an offering to Mars. We're going to go off to Gaul slash Spain slash Carthage slash Pontus slash Scythia and give them a bad time. Mars, Martius, March. You get the idea. Smarch. <laughs> oh, lousy Smarch weather. The unlucky 13th month of the year, known for reanimating the ghosts of school custodians killed in boiler accidents and the aversion of having two spaghetti meals in one day. April. To be perfectly candid, we don't know why April is called April. It isn't as certain as the other months. The best we can do is make an educated guess, and that educated guess is this. April in Latin was Aprilis, 
and we think that that comes from the Latin word apparere, which means to open. As in, it's spring, the plants and trees are all starting to open up, things are blooming, flowers are opening up, springtime, blah blah blah. And you know what else is something that opens up? That's right, legs and vaginas. This is Roman, remember? Spring is a time of rebirth, of life, of procreation. So the Romans made this month all about Venus, aka Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Look, they had a lot of sex festivals, okay? The pagan peoples surrounding Rome, so your Celts and your Gauls and all that, they also had a similar festival of rebirth around about the same time, only they didn't have Venus or Aphrodite, they had their own goddess, and their goddess of love was known as Eosta. Does that sound like the name and time of year of the festival of Easter? Yeah, absolutely nothing about that religion is original. May. You're not going to believe this. May is another Roman fertility festival. The Romans really got into the spring spirit. May comes from the goddess of growth and nurturing, Maya, also known as Bona Dea. And that is as much as I'll do on this particular goddess and her festival because it's a crucial part of a story that I plan to tell on HGT proper in the future. And this story involves the most historically significant cross-dressing libertine of all time. So I'm not going to spoil it here, but hey, you've got that to look forward to. June. Does anyone want to guess what kind of festival took place in June? Hands up, who had Roman Fertility Festival? Well done, everyone. You might have guessed at the etymology of the month of June, considering I've mentioned this particular goddess a couple of times already in this show. June comes from Juno. This particular month and festival is slightly different to the others, though. Juno was, among other things, the goddess of marriage. We've just had four straight months of wanton orgies, Now it's time for everyone to face the consequences. Women are starting to um, show at this point, four months in. Unless, of course, they've had their sylphium, which was a plant which was so powerful a natural morning-after pill that the sex-hungry Romans literally farmed it into extinction. So everyone that knocked anyone up or got knocked up on account of being whipped by an aroused naked werewolf Now it's time to pay the piper. This is the part of the year where everyone settles down with a partner and gets married and starts to contemplate married life. Not that it made any difference to the amount of orgies you went to, of course, this was Rome after all, but it meant that you had a particular person you had to throw a bone to every now and then. July and August. I'll get back to you. September, October, November, December. They all sound kind of similar, don't they? Why is that? Well, let's count from 1 to 10 in Latin. Unus, duo, tre, quattro, quinque, sex, septem, octo, novem, decem. Yeah, there's not a lot to the back half of the year. The Romans didn't bother to name months that didn't have an orgy festival in them. So they just sort of numbered them. So the last four months of the year are literally 7th month, 8th month, ninth month, and 10th month. The Romans just got lazy and gave up halfway through the year. If there's no sex in it, we don't want to bother naming it. But now you're thinking, hang on, 
December is the twelfth month of the year, not the tenth. These are all two numbers backward from where they should be. And you're right. Clever you. Well played. This is why I left July and August to last. Julius Caesar is, in my mind, the greatest human being to have ever lived. He is more extraordinary than anyone who has ever drawn breath, and this podcast essentially started as a way for me to tell cool stories about Julius Caesar, but I keep getting sidetracked with requests. One of the roles that Julius Caesar played in his life was Pontifex Maximus, which was the head of the Roman religion. He was essentially the Pope. And one of the things he was in charge of in his capacity as Pontifex Maximus was to make sure all of the religious festivals were held at the right time. The calendar back then wasn't a reliable thing. Days drifted back and forth. And it was important that there was someone smart enough in charge to do the maths and make sure that all of these holy orgies were taking place on the right days. That was the job of the Pontifex Maximus. And around the 50s and 40s BC, that man was Gaius Julius Caesar. And long story short, which once again I did cover in episode 4, check it out. Long story short, Caesar wasn't happy with the way that he had to keep updating the calendar. It was inefficient. So at one point, while he was out doing all of his awesome Julius Caesaring, he got together with a mathematician named Sisygnes, and together they made a better version of the calendar, which didn't need to be updated so much. And this became known as the Julian calendar, after Julius Caesar. And because Caesar was, among other things, a rampant egotist, he decided that in this new calendar he was going to have his own month. When you're the king of the largest empire in the world, and you make your own calendar, you can do those kind of things. And so that's why we have a month known as July. July, Julius, Julius. And then Julius Caesar died, and what happened was one of the most convoluted periods in history. It's one of the most complex things to ever happen. The upshot of this was that Caesar's adopted son and heir, Octavian, became the first Roman emperor. And it turns out he was the best Roman emperor. And because he was so awesome, his name was changed in history. He wasn't Octavian anymore. He was the most august person in the world, so he became known as Augustus. And he said, well, if Caesar gets a month, then I should get a month too. And again, when you're king of the world, you get to do that kind of thing. And that's why, after the month honoring Julius Caesar, we get the month of August, or August. And now you know why things be like they do. There's a famous meme on the internet about someone discovering the fact that the last four months of the calendar are 7, 8, 9, and 10. And then they say that they hope the person who ruined that system got stabbed only for someone to reply, well, guess what, have I got great news for you? I'm a hardened cynic, but I genuinely believe that that meme is true. I want it to be true. Sometimes I cleave to hope. Because the most awesome version of the story is always the truth, regardless of what the truth actually was. Thanks so much for listening on Patreon. Until next time, later taters.